Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to Scholarly Communication the podcast about how knowledge gets known. Scholarly communication is an open and ongoing conversation about how communication does knowledge. The premise of the podcast is this. Communicating is not a transferring, as if knowledge might be vacuum-sealed and delivered totally conserved, brain-to-brain. No, the premise of the podcast is that research communication is a place and time where people meet to represent and to recreate the things they claim to know. Communication is meaning, as knowledge is too. And meaning is not something we send to receive, it's something we make. I am your host, Daniel Shea. I invite you to listen to authors and reviewers, to editors and executives, as well as to scholars of communication and professionals in communication, all talking about how it is that the written word makes known the real world. My guest today is Yang Zhang faculty at the CISPA Helmholtz Center for Information Security. Young's group do research in trustworthy machine learning, social network analysis, and also misinformation, hate speech, and memes. So let's begin today's episode, Yang Zhang on scholarly communication. Hi, Yang. Welcome to the program. Daniel, thanks for the nice introduction. I'm very happy to be here. Very good, Young. Um, This interview is really an interview not about what you research so much as how you do that research, despite the fact that your research focus is highly topical at the moment. Um, Nonetheless, the real focus is, again, on the communication end of your research work. So that involves really scientific collaborating, scientific reading, and scientific writing which I like to give about equal distribution to. So if we might just pick up right at collaborating. Collaborating is, of course, the social end of science. And very few papers get out there submitted and accepted and published without there being a team effort behind them. Could you perhaps speak to the role that your relationships, your working relationships have to the success of your communication in science? Uh, in terms of, let's say, uh... Cooperation. So my role of uh, 
so it depends. So the collaboration, I, I would like to talk about it from, let's say, two perspectives. The first one is so-called the internal collaboration. So basically me with my students, and the otherwise, of course, external ones with, you know, researchers from all over the world. So re regarding the internal collaborations, I, I guess that uh, I need to uh, treat different students differently. So because different students indeed have their own different styles, some students like to work independently. Some people really need, you need to, you know, discuss with them even every day to make sure they are on track. So, uh, so for different students, at first, when they start their PhD, as I, I discuss with them, say which kind of styles they prefer. And of course, that time the students, the, the styles they choose normally are not the, the right one for them because they also just started their PhD. They actually also don't fully understand how to work as a researcher. So, with, with, with experience after one or two papers, projects experiences, I think students and I will more or less have a mutual understanding of, let's see, how, how a collaboration should work, what is the best or most efficient or effective way to, to make the progress, I mean, to make progress. Uh, basically, that's uh, regarding the internal collaborations, regarding students. And uh, on the other hand, so with the external collaborations, uh, I have been in academia for a couple of years, so I have seen so many interesting, I mean, so many cases that many students, I mean, or many junior researchers in, the, in, their, in their career, they like to collaborate for the sake of collaboration. Like, uh, I often see people in conferences just find any people they can find and say, Let, let's start a collaboration without even knowing each other well. Yeah, which I do not think this is a very effective way of doing collaboration. In many cases, your collaboration, you, you need to have some mutual benefits. Let's say you, you and your partner working together on a project. Uh, you better have some knowledge base to complement each other or, or compensate each other or, or let's say your, your working styles are similar or, or etc. Because collaborations actually, in many cases, especially working pe with people from outside, collaboration is also a very time consuming thing because you need to spend a lot of time on the communications. Yeah, so emails, slacks, or whatever communication tools you are using. So which actually costs a lot of time. Sometimes even really easily get people frustrated. Yeah. So uh, that's why so I would suggest that uh, you know young especially the younger PhD students or junior researchers do not, you know, just collaborate for the sake of collaboration. Find people you want to collaborate, know them well and then really believe that your, your collaboration will really benefit each other. So that's, I think, the important thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad, though, that you uh, you break that down so wonderfully and, and clear, and a few things I'd like to unpack there. But first off, I'm really glad that you speak there to uh, early career re researchers, um, um, junior researchers, people who are still doing their PhDs, um, because that is a core audience of, of this podcast, for sure. One of the interesting checks or corrections you make to what I often hear is, is this, let's say, almost glorification of collaboration, that it is in itself a wonderful thing, right? And I think, I th I think you give some very wise advice there as to, you know, hey, there's got to be more to it than just simply networking. And um, I think it would be interesting to hear maybe how it is on this external level you have been able to form sort of complementary style matching type collaborations that have really improved your work, you might say. 
Oh, I mean, I can give you two cases or examples. So, so one of my very successful external collaborator is Professor Neil Zhenqiang Gong from Duke University. So we are more or less in the same stage of our career. So I think he, I believe also he's about to get his tenure very soon. And then we, the first time we meet each other, we only say hello on the conference. Yeah, so we we didn't actually talk about that much. But after we meet each other the three times in the conference, and suddenly the time we start to realize that we are doing similar things. We sometimes have a chat in the you know the social activity discussions, and then we find that right. So some certain stuff we talk about really can be made together as a paper. That's why we start collaboration. I mean, for this external collaboration, I think one nice thing. Uh, I mean, one one easy thing to find a good collaborator is find those who are in the relatively same stage as you. Academia stage, I don't know, just a, a first year tenure track professor or I don't know, third year PhD student. If more or less the same time, it should work. And uh, then, of course, I also have some other collaborators. But once I collaborate once, normally I don't have many follow-ups. In many cases, I I I, I think that the communication costs extra time, and the collaboration, the, the the stuff I get from them or the stuff I can offer to their to them, are not that worthy for the the sake of a collaboration in terms of a communication cost. Yes, this is really quite quite an issue. So this is one case. Another case is uh, I work with a team of researchers, which by default is, uh, let's say, a virtual lab called iDrama. So they, they are the people who start to work on, let's say, hateful speech and memes. They are actually the pioneers of uh, you know working on these topics back in 2017 or 16 even. Uh, so I know them through friends but in the beginning again so i know that by by socializing with them socializing with we discuss whatever random funny things and we drink in the conferences or discuss or go to dinner together it's not like a, you know I, I see you first as they say let's collaborate no but it's just like a certain point we realize that yes we know each other well so we know how each everyone's working style i say that probably we can start some collaboration and then we start to collaborate on uh, actually, our first paper, uh, my first paper with iDrama is uh, in the beginning of 2020. It's the time the pandemic just started, and uh, uh, Corona is allegedly coming from China. So that time there are many, many, let's say, xenophobic behavior, I mean, or speeches on the internet. So we are trying to understand those things as well, actually. So uh, in that sense, yes, everyone knows their there, there, so, for example, the collaborators from iDrama, they know what data set to look, look at. They also have the analytical tools. Meanwhile, I can also offer my uh, help on the analysis or, I don't know, so the machine learning models in the end, so the collaboration just naturally formed. So, so basically, that's, that's how I do collaborations. It's probably worth noting that the paper that you're referring to there about COVID and xenophobic um, speech and so on turned out to be one of your most more, more successful papers, at least according to uh, citation counts. So, um, so there's something to be. It's, it's, it was also covered by Washington Post, I think. Yes, Washington Post. So, because that time is a trendy topic, it's also an important topic because 2020, in the beginning of Corona, indeed, there are many, many xenophobic behaviors on the internet. What I what I like about the Duke collaboration um, anecdote that you give us there is your approach of give it time, be let's say a little less aggressive or forceful in your way of connecting, and again that that sticks out for me as uh, something that might be of use to people in their early careers who have a 
perhaps a different style, right? For some people, it may be worthwhile making more connections than they need. And for other people, their working style is different. But the thing that really stuck out for me was science of science research shows that the parties to a collaboration will take away from that collaboration different levels of, let's say, reward in the scientific community. So on the same paper, not everyone is, as we know, getting equal credit for what is published there. And your advice to, well, hey, it might make sense to look at people who are at a similar stage of career is is sound because you've got people who are perhaps approaching things with a similar mindset. They have similar interests career-wise, and perhaps their track records are level enough that the credit could be distributed more evenly in the project. Uh, yes, exactly. That's uh, actually that's another thing that regarding, let's say, you, I, I would recommend younger people to collaborate with people with your sim- similar stage. So yes, your track record, your your interest, also your time, because the academia actually is a long, longer stay academia, less time you have on actual research. Most of the cases you are writing emails, dealing with other stuff that's not really research related. So, but relatively, if, if you're younger, so normally you have more time to do this. So it's also good that, uh, you know, so, because I believe the good collaboration should be, let's say uh, a paper, everyone contributes to a significant part, not let's say one person just put their name on or I don't know, appear in the meeting for the first time and then disappear. So, yeah, so, so that's that's why so I, I believe that people with the same stage should, should work together. I mean, work together should be a relatively, you should have a relatively better chance to have a good collaboration. And the other sort of collaboration that you talked about there, we were just really going into this version of external collaboration. And and I find this a very useful um, distinction to be making. Looking into the internal sort of collaboration that you were talking about, it's it's very interesting to hear how you, you recognize your role changes. You were suddenly talking there more about my students and the guidance that they might need. And this is very much a part of scientific collaborating, the role that a PI, a supervisor, a mentor has. Um, Could you perhaps uh, speak to what that contributes to your research and the success that you've had? Uh, Working with students is always fun. Yeah, so it's, uh, especially, so if you stay in academia longer time, or at least right now, I stay in academia for a couple of years. Right now, for me, the most rewarding thing is my students getting their paper accepted. They are getting their success and they are getting their job when they finish their PhD. So, uh, as a as a let's say uh, as a supervisor, so my I only have one goal that is let my student to gain knowledge, publish well, and be an independent researcher in a couple of years training, of course. So that's my only goal. So, and uh, again, so as I mentioned before, so student different students have different styles. Some students are you know really like to work independently, so I let them be. And some people really need, you know, step-by-step guidance. I also, you know, for those cases, I also spend more time on them in terms of, let's say, have meetings, maybe 10 minutes meeting per day with them to make sure they're on the right track. So, yeah, but in, in, in general, it's a very enjoyable process, actually. And do you find through the different personalities, the different interests and research focuses, and perhaps even other expertise than you that you find in front of you and your groups of students um, that, that are under your supervision or in your research group, do you find that, that that also 
contributes to the way that you generate ideas, that you notice new nuances in research directions or any other thing that may turn into then a successful publication? Yeah, so so absolutely. So uh, three, four years ago at that time, so my labs worked um, basically all ideas from me. Uh, so in recent years, still most of the ideas are uh, mainly dominated by me. So I propose them. But however, in many cases, I notice, especially in recent years, so that uh, I'm I'm easily get more and more inspired by my students telling me there's this new technique on these things. Especially for the past half a year, past whole year, everyone's talking about large language models. I definitely do not have enough time to play with ChatGPT, but my students have time to play with it all the time. So sometimes they just tell me, "Oh, look, ChatGPT can do this," and then I say, "Oh, I say that maybe we can do things like this or that." So the students have become more and more mature and they are starting to producing more and more, let's say, hint that I can try to help them to shape it to a new research idea. So this is uh, indeed definitely true that, uh, you know, with more and more students, different expertise, I also have students uh, have an economy background, I have students from, let's say, uh, uh, did a lot of uh, things in the, uh, the social perspective of uh, computer science. So their, 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 their knowledge also helped me a lot to shape the ideas and uh, come up with the new, new research papers. One of the things about collaborating that is always, let's say, the main challenge, I would say, is that you learn it by experience. It's not something that you're trained in as a researcher. And maybe to just pick up that last example that you're talking about, how you've noticed over particularly the last half year, yeah, I know that students are bringing in areas of expertise, ChatGPT, which which you don't necessarily share. But I wonder if the larger trend of you being inspired by your students might also be a difference in your style of supervising, your gained experience as to how to lead a group. Do you notice that that might also be a source, that it's not just what they know, but it's what you do that makes the difference? Uh, might be, but I never thought it that way. But uh, yes, so, so normally I, I never have, let's see, I'm not, I, I'm never like a, 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 a PI who really control my group in every steps. So basically, I give my students a lot of freedom. So this might also help for them to be, you know, explore themselves. I try to teach them things, but of course, you when you tell, let's say, a student, you should do this, you should not do this. Normally, they don't listen to you. Yeah, so that's, that's normal. Uh, they, will, they, will, they will somehow re- realize what you said or believe it uh, yeah, a couple of uh, years or months. But uh, indeed, anyway, I still give them a lot of freedom. And this freedom indeed can somehow, I believe, can somehow help them to become independent in the sense of coming up with their own research ideas or you know, in the future be an independent good researcher. One of the things that PIs and supervisors certainly have the lead in is experience in reading the literature. And I'm going to use this as my segue over into what I call scientific reading, because I just feel that it's done differently enough in science that it deserves its own name. Um, So what would be, let's say, some of the first things that you bring your students into contact with when it comes to dealing with? with getting information from the literature, be it through how they search, how they read, what sorts of notes they take, how they reference manage. I mean, I'm talking about a whole bunch of different things here, but pick out any of these that you find is one of the things that you really need to pass on to most students early on. So 
for every student who started in my group, I told them one thing. Normally, the first three sentences, I told them one thing that you need to read at least five new papers per week. Yeah, so this, this, I told them that five papers are, can come from any field. I mean, relatively also in computer science, but it can come from any subdomains in computer science, but that's not necessarily directly linked with, you know, what we are doing, because in many cases, I believe that you know some knowledge from other fields can also help you or to give you some inspiration for your current research. Of course, students, none of the students listen to it. <laughs> so uh, in the end, I end up with students, a uh, bunch of students, uh, let's say, read maybe one or two papers per week. Uh, but with time goes by, besides that, I also try to organize the so-called reading group. Every week in my group, so this, this time, so two students are presenting their papers, whatever they like, to the whole, you know, group. So right now my group size is around 15, 16. So, you know, every two months, a student have a chance to present the papers they like. So this indeed help a bit. <coughs> I do tell my students to check, let's say, uh, uh, Google Scholar often and check this archive, especially it's an archive of subdomain of cryptography and security domain every day to see whether there are any newest interesting papers coming in. So, I mean, yes, for three, two, three years ago, when I just somehow started my lab, that time the students who follow this is very rare. But recently I noticed that more and more students actually, you know, start to really, really catch up the new literatures. Many cases, nowadays, where many cases where in discussions, my students often mention papers that I have never heard of or I never see. Yeah, so this is reading things you just need to, I mean, at least from my perspective, I just need to keep on inspiring them to mention that, you know, reading is very important. So at so, uh, some point, uh, students may catch up, or eventually they will, but uh, it's just like, uh, it's not something that uh, students will, you know, get, get used to reading since the day one of their PhD. They need time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, many of the fields in science, and computer science is no exception there, it's not something that very many people enter into thinking that perhaps you know, thinking perhaps that they're going to have to read a lot. <laughs> turns turns out, though, um, as as you're as you're portraying it, that is actually the fact. Um, maybe maybe to uh, uh, take one of these examples that you've just given. So the reading group where students are presenting papers that they found somehow good. They there's something about them that they like. Could could you perhaps uh, describe a bit more how how these sessions go? So. It worked the following. So every week we have one session. So two students, actually for the past past year, so past six months, the session we have like a three students present because most of right now, all, most of our readings are about large language models. Not only trustworthy large language models, but also let's see how these models can do or capable of. Uh, there are many, many papers coming out every week or every day. So we present three, sometimes even four papers in a session. So in this session, a student, uh, each student choose a paper. They have like around 20 minutes normally to present the paper and then we discuss regarding, I mean, on the paper's details. So of course, during the middle of the presentation, we also, I mean, I also, also often stop them to ask the details for how they did this. So it's, uh, yes, so basically it's like a, you know, sort of like a seminar style. That's wonderful because I can imagine it's, it's a group level way of modeling what is in a paper, what it is that you should be paying attention to, and what can we believe or not believe or credit more or credit less and, and, and so on and so forth. Do you, do you see these, this learning process going on for people who are just also part of the seminar generally, not even the presenter? Yes. Uh, actually, 
uh, during the discussion of these papers, normally we discuss about the weakness of these papers. You know, I mean, goodness or good part, yes, but also we, we find many weaknesses, because especially we right now with the ChatGPT style papers, everything is in their you know, uh, beginning stage, so many things are not mature enough, so many things we can improve. And uh, indeed, so not only the presenters, but also the audience actually learn quite a lot of knowledge. Uh, Basically, almost every of this reading group, after it, uh, I have students who are not the presenter will come to me to discuss whether following that paper, they can do a different project inspired by that paper. But of course, many cases, these kind of ideas are not, you know, to me, it's not valid. I will tell them, you know, why, why this thing is probably it's not really a good way to pursue. However, at least I noticed that with the reading group, people start to think what's the paper they are reading, they are, they are watching the presentation, the, the knowledge they learned or they see there can be used for their own research, which is, I think, is a very good thing. Yeah, I suppose it's really a very interesting, this goes back to this wait and be patient sort of uh, theme that we had earlier. Uh, the, there's, there's a very interesting distinction to be made between, hey, that's a neat paper and that's a fantastic idea. I'd like to research on that. So concrete and moving forward actively as opposed to which seems to be what you're kind of suggesting and saying that many of the students then take away after a discussion with you, this idea that, yes, there's loads of good ideas out there and there's loads of interests moving around through the different research communities and people are picking up sometimes very similar topics in very different ways. What you really need to do in the reading is take that away. So in other words, there's a textual side to the entire research process, which needs to be given its own place. Actually, in our reading group, so I'm still talking about large language models. Many actually papers we are reading on large language models are not directly related to security or privacy, but actually related to their applications, how people can use it. Because in many cases, we don't even know because we are eventually we are not really a machine learning lab. You know, so we are still a security lab. So uh, the newest development of these large language models or the, the way they are being used, they are being optimized, actually give us many new knowledge. And this new knowledge can be, in many cases, directly applied to our own research. So that's the part. So I agree with you that it's not directly, you know, we work on one topic one and we work on this, we read the exactly topic one paper try to improve them. Instead, we are more like, you know, taking the knowledge from these papers to do something different. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And this becomes then really, let's say, the entire background, the library that is in somebody's head when they go 
in their next, their current paper, right? Their current manuscript to say, okay, what is the value of what I'm doing? What is the most precise way of asking about that value? And who's going to care about this? I mean, th that library that's in your head is, is going to start giving you answers to that just as much as the background knowledge that you need to have of your research focus is going to give you que answers to questions as to how to proceed in a framework or elsewhere, right? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, besides this point, another thing I also tell my students, so we, I mean, but those, those things you need really students to do it themselves, is I remember when I was a PhD student, I also read many papers from different domains. But in many cases, the paper, for me, is just a fun topic, has nothing to do with my research. But however, I can still gain some knowledge from the paper in terms of, for example, experiment setup. How they choose the data set? How they justify they choose this data set? How they justify they choose this evaluation metric? You know, those kind of you know detailed things can be easily carried as a let's say a common tool for for you to use in any discipline. I mean, any domains. So I sometimes I also tell students, you know, I read papers, I read high level ideas, I understand they always works. I don't normally read their you know their concrete experiment setting, but I tell students you guys should do that because in many cases will also help you to reduce the amount of effort for you to spend on your experiments because previous people normally do this in this way. You can just simply follow them. So that would mean that some of what you're learning as you go out there reading is how to think your research, how to think it through then. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, indeed. So reading a paper actually in many cases is very fun. So it's not only a topic I learn, a new algorithm. But many cases from, from the beginning to the end, if it's a good paper, from the beginning till the end, you can learn many knowledge from, you know, from many perspectives and it can be used in some point in your life. As you said, you can build as a, you know, in the future as a library, also as a, you know, big arsenal for you, you know, how you to use for your own research. You, you put up a fairly, let's say, not, I wouldn't say it's a grueling schedule, but a, as a, an impactful schedule on people's lives to say about five papers a week. Um, reading most papers, especially from a scientific perspective, really caring about the details of the work it does take time. Um, I've, I've heard from very many people of, of, of your experience, though, that this time lessens or as your career advances, you become better at doing it. Um, but maybe on a very practical level, how is it that you yourself actually fit this sort of reading into your week? And secondly, how is it that you expect students to fit that sort of reading into their busy week? So for me, so normally every day morning when I start my day of working, so I, I, I simply go to archive and check the newest papers. So every day nowadays, the security is, uh, you know, a popular topic. Every day I think in archive, we have like 20, 30 papers, new papers coming out. And uh, I don't know, one third of them is about machine learning and, you know, trustworthy machine learning. So for those papers, I read a bit. Yeah, I read their title, I read the abstract. And most papers I find interesting, I mean, most papers, well, after reading the abstract, I feel like ah, probably not something I'm interested in. But sometimes it has really good papers that I, I can read directly so from abstract and then introduction to probably the end of methodology. So normally I don't have time to read the experiment evaluation, yeah? Uh, this is an, a common way for me to do it. Also, so in academia world, so there are many top researchers in my field, from time to time, I go to check their website yeah, to see what is the newest papers that they are, they are publishing and also read those papers. 
Another new way for me to read papers I realize is very interesting is I'm using this uh, sort of a, so uh, nowadays there are many media to cover research topics. These media are not really these traditional media, but more like, you know, self-independent media that, you know, create uh, or summarizing a paper themselves that they publish on whatever social media. So in many cases, I also read those articles. And those articles, if I find these, you know, titles are, or, or, or the description is quite interesting, I also go to find their original papers to, to read. So basically, that's my only three sources for me to read papers. For my students, however, so for them to read the papers, uh, this, uh, again, so I only tell them to read five papers per week. But okay, as I told you, so not still today, not many students are you know really following that rule. But I expect them to I don't know every day spend a half an hour to maybe read one paper, something like this. Okay, all right, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that's really interesting. That's fantastic. Um, with without any good transition, I'm going to come to the last part <laughs> of uh, of our interview. <laughs> I, I usually look for a nice transition, but sometimes I just fail at it. Um, and, and that is the more uh, traditional category of scientific writing, which is something that is you know in pretty much everybody's mind. And I suppose. An interesting question to get us started there would be something more in your own personal history. I mean, if if you look back five years or more and think about how it was that you began a manuscript, and if you look at the way it is that you would begin one today or are beginning manuscripts today, what would be the major contrast point? Or is there even a major contrast point? Is there continuity instead? Uh, yes, so if you want me to write a paper now, in 2023, and then you want me to write a paper in 2018, so in 2018, so that time I was a postdoc, well, at that time, so if I write a paper, I still like, you know, a senior PhD student, I start to like, like to write the simple things of the paper, simple on code on code, yes? for example, preliminaries, experimental setup, or methodology. I always leave the difficult one, like uh, introduction, abstract, to the end. Yeah, because I believe that those things are complicated. I can write some concrete things. Let's see what data set I'm using, or I introduce the data set. I'm introducing my algorithm. Uh, the introduction motivation, how to motivate this work is I leave it to the end. So to, to you know, to, 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 to leave the difficult task later. But if you want me to write a paper now, I will start with the so-called difficult part, that is the introduction. Actually, it's more concretely. So I believe the, I mean, at least, uh, so I believe many papers uh, at least my many of my papers, I believe the first three paragraphs are the most interesting ones. Basically, they give you a background, they give you the motivation, why we are doing this, and you know how we did it, especially why we are doing it. Nowadays, I spend a lot of efforts on actually tell the students or help the students to write why we are doing this work. Yeah, so which normally is the second part, a uh, second paragraph or third paragraph in the introduction. So this is a big contrast point, I guess. That is a major contrast, <laughs> indeed. Indeed, that's really interesting. the The fact that you uh, almost evaluate these things slightly differently. What it, I mean, you you said that I mean back then you would have started with the simple things and gone on to the harder things, and now you start with the hard things. There's another way of seeing it, and that and it's that the difficult things have just become simpler for you. Is is, is that possible? Yeah. So it's I mean it's possible when you start to you know. Work on work, work and work on more projects. Normally, you start to shape your research methodology, your research vision. So, 
many cases, your vision become more and more clear. So it's easier and easier for you to, you know, to write the, you know, why we are doing this work, the motivation, which again, connected to why even we are even doing it in the beginning. So we like how we come up with this idea. So this, everything is connected for me. It's a notice of working with my students. My main contribution is let's say give them the idea. So when I give them the idea, of course, I need to think it through. So why, whether it's easier for them to write a good or second or third paragraph of the introduction. So yes, indeed. So when you become, at least when I become senior, so I start, you know, more and more enjoy writing the first uh, section than the rest. One question I, I work together with, actually, computer scientists, helping them write. And uh, it's not my background, though. My background is linguistics. Um, the, the question that I often get asked, and it's sort of an indirect question at me, it's kind of one of those things, well, if you ever met someone who was experienced, and this is part of the reason I talk to researchers like yourself, um, to ask them how it is that they recognize, you know, when an idea has become publish ready. You know, it's, it's, it's ready now for submission. And, and I think you might just have given a bit of an indirect answer to that question. If you can write those first three paragraphs in an introduction in a way that's convincing, well, then it's published ready, isn't it? Uh, yes, but of course, uh, the first three paragraphs is only building, let's say, why we are doing it. But uh, to be, make it published ready, we also make sure our experiments indeed validate our point. Yeah, so... so so for me to, to make sure to, 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 to judge whether a paper is ready to be submitted, it's like, uh, of course, we have a very good motivation, everything, and also our experiments indeed can match our motivation yeah, or can support our, 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 our goal of this work. That, then that's enough. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That, that that's that's clear. I, I I wasn't I wasn't really actually so clear in the way I put it. I uh, I mean, what 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 I'm saying is that I'm dealing with very many researchers, early career researchers, who who all day are doing just what you've said. You know, they're running experiments, they're thinking about methods, they're testing whether or not the methods and the results match up, and so on. But what they seem to lack is that spark to know, aha, I have a project here. This is this this should turn into this this should turn into a manuscript and and I think part of what you're saying when you can hone those first few paragraphs when you know why in a very concrete way then you're kind of getting at that stage where aha I need to start writing. Indeed, I agree with you. Also, when you stay in academia longer and uh, or you read more papers, you, you somehow also can learn from other people's experience, let's say, how they write their own papers. And then you know, let's say, what uh, idea is sufficient for that so-called top-tier papers. You, you, will, you, you, you will probably get a taste after reading or writing more papers yourself. You, I mean, this is, I think it's more like an experience. There's not a magic key thing that, uh, oh, so, you know, my, 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 my idea, so, yeah. I can write a nice three first paragraphs, but however, the idea can be big or small. If sometimes the idea or, or stuff you want to do is too tiny, so also not sufficient for a paper, actually. Yeah, so these these things also need to, you know, some experience to, to, to somehow make sure that your paper is, uh, let's say, sufficient for a publication or for a submission. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the you talked about there's no magical key here. For sure, there isn't. And I think you're right very much so to, to point to experience. But what's interesting is, is that part of that experience is full recognition of the place that text has inside of the research pro, uh, 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 process, because it's the reading at your back and the practice at writing 
that really shows you, I'm ready to publish now. Yes, I absolutely, I agree, I agree, yes. One of the ways that writing can be used also in research is to be writing in a way that isn't actually directly meant for communication. Some people actually make that distinction. They talk about writing to communicate and writing to think. Um, so, for example, very many computer scientists or mathematicians love to go up to the whiteboard and, <laughs> and, and start diagramming things out. I mean, essentially, that is writing. There's nothing that isn't writing about that. Um, I wonder how yourself, over the years, you've employed writing not as a publishing end, but as a thinking end. Uh, so, till today, I still have some sort of, uh, from time to time, have some notes or not really, I mean, many of these are more like a diagrams. Let's say if I do this, I do this, how the whole system will work. Uh, quite often, actually. So I, I, whenever I start a new project or I'm coming up, I mean, when I start to think about a new idea for, let's say, for a student project, uh, actually, I quite often draw such diagrams or whatever thing to make sure that everything is complete or, or, or is convincing to, to, the, to the outside world. Uh, yes, I do use that approach, but uh, not really that deep in the sense of, let's say, I don't, I do not have, let's say, a very rigorous methodology to, you know, to regulate the part of how uh, how, how I write regarding how, what, what my thinking. Uh, the, uh, another thing when it comes to writing generally, not just in science, but it applies equally to science, is, is people's, uh, and, and I'm thinking of this because of what you've just said, people's behaviors around writing. And that is sort of the question of, well, how often do you do it? Where do you do it? Um, what is your approach? Are you somebody who writes a lot at once or do you kind of outline it and then paragraph by paragraph? Is there more of a, uh, you know? Yeah, so ideally, I wish I'm the person who outlined first and then read it paragraph by paragraph. Yeah, so like uh, I make outlines and I follow my outline, right? That's who I wish I am. But actually, when I write papers, I'm just going from the bottom approach. Like I start writing whatever whatever I'm thinking in my mind, and then I keep coming back to revising it, to revise it. So this is the way that is, uh, I would say, not the best way. But however, is the way that somehow make me relatively more relaxing. So I always feel like writing is a very uh, writing gives me a lot of pressure, actually. Yeah, so, so till today, actually. Even though till today, most of the paper part is written by the students. But still, uh, writing gave me a lot of pressure. So I realized that uh, one thing can release this pressure is when I see the text I'm writing become more and more, you know. It's like, you know, I have three, four, five pages, no matter whether these five pages are useful for the paper or not. Doesn't matter, but with the five pages here, the whole page, let's say, total number of pages I need to write is seven pages. When I have five, I feel way more relaxed. So I read a lot of things, and then I come back to keep on revising it. That's my approach, which is not a, definitely not a good way. I agree. But however, there's some things, this is my own, own, own way. Yeah. Well, this is exactly what I mean. The different sort of psychologies involved in, in how people get through the task of writing, which is difficult for everyone, which is one of those things I like to sort of repeat because some people think it suddenly just becomes easy at some point. And uh, I thought, 
I find it interesting that you you wish you were an outliner, but you remain a bottom upper. Yeah, uh, there was uh, the, over uh, at the Chicago Writing Program, for instance. Uh, one Larry McCurney uh, spoke about how the fact you don't need to be one or the other. You need to be the one that you're good at doing. And and he said he was always a bottom upper. And even in college or high school, where they required that you hand in an outline, well, he would write the essay and then write the outline after he finished the essay and then hand in that and then later the finished essay already. <laughs> so, I mean, he was cheating. He was cheating, essentially. He was, just, he was pretending. Um, why is it do you feel that you would rather actually have a, let's say, top-down approach to this? Because, I mean, I sometimes also try to write the goals from the top-down approach, not the bottom-up approach. Yeah? So top-down approach... When I read these outlines, I realized when I read the outlines, each of these uh, items I wrote is also very detailed. It's not, not really like really it's a very high level general thing that I, I fill in everything. But instead, it's like I already start to fill in everything when I read this general you know, backbone of the paper, which is also not, uh, you know, not that much different from the bottom up approach. So top down, it's, uh, I mean, ideally it's nice. It helps you to think, but however, in many cases, Again, so it's more maybe linked with my mental pressure that, uh, you know, after you write some, let's say, uh, bullet list uh, uh, for, for your paper, so you still feel like, uh, you know, I only have like a half a page. Yeah, I have to write an eight page. I only have half a page, which uh, this, this, you know, skeleton, which, <laughs> which doesn't help me, which means that my, I'm really way behind my schedule of writing, even though probably it's not. Anyway, so, so this is something that, but however, if I, on the other hand, if I have, let's say, three pages of uh, written text, I need to feel, you know, more relaxed. They say that, look, I'm, I'm not far away from finishing, so uh, I, I'm on the right track. I think this is more, more, more is that the reason that for me to, I like to do this bottom-up approach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of this is just simply that writing doesn't let itself be separated out into one or the other. I mean, I think you make a great point there when you say, well, sometimes when I'm doing an outline, I find myself just kind of writing <laughs> because so much material and details are gathering next to one of these points on my outline. So I might as well just carry on in that vein. I think I think one of the skills to have in your mind, and I would be interested to hear what you have to say about this or your own experience, is to know when to do what according to circumstances or the stage of the ideas or how you feel or whatever it might be. Uh, when to do what? So yes, this uh, when to do what, I, I'm, I'm refining my understanding about when to do what with more and more papers writing. So this, again, is based on experiences. But when to do what, when you, so nowadays, especially when I talk with my students, when, when I help them to write papers, I can somehow already estimate, you know, how many days or hours you, you, you need to finish this part of the paper. Yeah, so if certain things didn't go well, I can check with the students, you know, we, we got stuck where. So when to do what, I think this is more like an experience-based, uh, you know, technique, I mean, the skills you, you will gain with more experiences. Uh, not really like uh, something that uh, there's a uh, you know handbook that once you read that magical handbook that everything you know you know went to the ones. Very good. Um, to close out, uh, one of the major aims of this podcast is, as I always say, to help the research. And concretely, just to give a few examples to pop them into your head, um, I, I'm thinking: How can authors submit better manuscripts? How can chairs or editors? 
make better decisions on manuscripts? How might reviewers provide better reviews to authors? How might teaching be done better for early career researchers? The, the list is very long. Uh, but if you could pick out anything that sort of came to mind that you felt, if we could just improve this one thing, I'm sure better research would be being produced. Um, what would that be and why? Okay, so that's a very excellent question. So pick one thing to make research better. I think that, uh, uh, I say, so when, when you want to do a PhD, so you, 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 I mean, when a student wants to do a PhD, for sure he has some ambition to, you know, achieve something in his life, yeah, in his professional, in their professional career. So I think that if the students are, you know, are willing to keep on reminding themselves why they do their PhD and think about their future career plans during the PhD process. Because eventually PhD is only a temporary job. So like a three, four, five, six years, you, you're, you're done basically. So the students need to somehow keep on, re- I, 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 I would suggest or strongly recommend them to keep on reminding themselves, I say why I'm doing PhD here and what I want to do after. So then many things will be stay on track because in many cases you see students lost the track of, well, of course, redirect from other things, mainly because they forgot, you know, what, 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 what they are doing during the, what, why they are doing, even doing the PhD. So always not only focus on your current work on your table, but also think about the future. It might help you to, you know, to, to become a relatively better researcher or have a better research vision in the future. That's probably one suggestion. Another one I could give is, let's say, uh, nowadays, uh, I, 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 I'm a strong believer of, let's say, uh, a good social atmosphere in the lab. Let's say the students of the lab help each other, are good friends with each other. I also told my students, you guys should do this because eventually, so more superficially, uh, many of you guys might be, uh, you know, uh, work partners for life. Yeah. So because you know, both of you guys are, I mean, all of you guys are going to industry or going to academia, or a professor at different universities, you could help each other. If you know each other well, your, your, your future career will be easier. So your network by default is stronger. This is way more stronger than any people you meet at the conferences. Yeah. So social atmosphere, uh, social atmosphere. In a lab, I think it's important. So if, let's say, we have more different ways to make the, you know, social atmosphere uh, better in, uh, um, in labs, so I, I believe the scientific productivity as well as, uh, you know, the, the future development will be better. Anyway, that's, that's my take. <laughs> yeah. well, well, thank you very much for that, uh, Yang. That is Yang Zhang, and he yeah. is faculty at uh, CISPO. This is goodbye from me to Yang. Goodbye. Goodbye. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.